This is Catalog and Cocktails. Presented by Data.World. Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Catalog and Cocktails. It's an honest, no BS, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data management with tasty beverages in hand. Presented by Data.World. Coming to you from Austin, Texas, and somewhere else in the world. Um, I'm Tim Gasper, longtime product guy and data nerd at Data.World, joined by co-host Juan. Hey, Tim. I'm, I'm Juan Takeda. I'm the principal scientist at Data.World. And as always, it's a pleasure. Wednesday, middle of the week, end of the day. And uh, today, there's so many things that we're going to talk about. It's a really exciting day. First of all, we're live from New York. <laughs> Actually, from Roosevelt Island for the Knowledge Graph Conference, and we're here with Katharina Curry, who's the lead oncologist from IKEA. Oh, IKEA BB Systems, or yeah, Inter IKEA yeah. Systems BB. <laughs> Katharina, it is a pleasure to have you here as a guest, because when the pandemic started, I started out reaching out to a bunch of people and just kind of, hey, this is an opportunity to connect, and we connected a couple of years ago, and just since then, we just have on our calendar a monthly chat that we just yeah. connect to talk about anything, whatever's going on. And I, I'm really excited that we finally have you here as a guest. Yes, um, I've really loved all our chats and I really loved how you pushed me to write that blog post about the three layers of the knowledge graph. That was like- Which we'll get into today for sure. Yeah, yeah, that was like one of the nice moments where like, Katarina, you have all these things in your mind. You should write about this you should like people should know about how you're thinking and all these thoughts you have and just encourage me because sometimes you, you just have those thoughts but you don't think that they might be valuable and there's a sometimes I just walk around and I'm thinking everybody's probably everybody probably knows this stuff already I shouldn't like why should I highlight it no, <laughs> yeah but we're going to dive into that but babe, yeah. before we go into our discussion let's uh tell and toast so what are we drinking what are we toasting for Tim what are you drinking in Austin today so uh, I am drinking something that I invented here. I'm going to call it the Cafe Red because it's uh, uh, based on a, a cocktail similar uh, that's called Cafe Rojo, but I modified it a little bit. So it's got uh, coffee liqueur, raspberry gum syrup, um, uh, Grand Marnier, and rum. So very interesting drink. A, a little sweet, but very tasty. Wow, you went really cocktail-y today. today. <laughs> Trying to be true to things. Sometimes we yeah. cheat and we just have some whiskey or something like that. We're both, uh, we didn't have a chance to go get the cocktails, but we're having the Coney Island Merman New York IPA. Um, never had it. Actually, nice. It's pretty good. Yeah. I'm, I'm not usually a fan of IPAs, but this is nice, balanced taste, and that's good. It's nice. Awesome. So cheers. Let's, but wait, we got to cheers. Well, hold on. Today, we're going to go cheers for, uh, it's the start of our celebration of three years. The first episode of Catalan Cocktails was May 13th, 2020, almost three, three years ago. Uh, this is amazing. I have, thank you so much. Uh, three years of amazing conversations and great cocktails. Cheers to that. We'll be uh, celebrating this week now. I just completely forgot about it. It's such an honor to join in your celebrations. Is, yes. Thank you. So, all right, we got a warm-up question today. So, you work for IKEA. So, IKEA is known for its very easy assembly instructions that end up being difficult for people. So, what is something else in life that should be simple that you struggle with? Um, running a team and building technology. <laughs> it should be easy, right? 
we have all this amazing knowledge. We, we've gone to university for this. We should know that. That's but why good. is it every time so difficult <laughs> to, to run a team and build technology with them? I think the, the, the team thing, I would answer that is because humans are complicated, period. <laughs> but then the technology is complicated too. Yeah. That's also difficult. It's both. It's the humans are complicated and the tech is there complicated. And then both of them together, it multiplies, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. How, how about you, Tim? Um, uh, I'll, I'll switch it into personal life and I'll say uh, something that seems like it should be simple, but that ends up being so hard keeping the house clean and organized we have great products for that by the way <laughs> i have some of them in my house <laughs> oh okay i was gonna say something about travel sometimes travel i think should just be easier to go book right but i also think that probably a lot of my travel is a little bit more complicated than normal so yeah, you do wow. have some complicated logistics. Like, I got to be in New York, and then I got to be here. And so and somehow you figure it out. Well, I also enjoy it, too. But anyways, okay, so let's kick it off. We have so much to discuss today. All right, so we're here at the Knowledge Graph Conference. So honest, no BS. When should users, organizations consider Knowledge Graphs? Or is it really, nah, AI, large language model, GPT, this actually can do it now all? That's a big question, <laughs> and that's a really big one. Um, but I would say the moment you uh, find that you have a lot of data and you're working with it and it becomes harder and more difficult. So when it, when you get this get to this situation, have all this data, it should be simple, but it's not. I think that's a moment uh, when knowledge graphs do make sense because it helps you organize your data, helps you to have a better grip on it. So one of the things we were talking about earlier was kind of this balance of there's humans and machines and we want, are the machines controlling us or we're controlling the machines and when, what is this balance and humans are active, humans are passive, like what, what, you had some great commentary about this. Yes, yeah, so, so you, you kind of asked me what, what is the, this idea or this foremost idea I want to bring to the world and it's definitely that as humans we shouldn't have um, technology run us. So we are creating technology, but many times we are somehow becoming really passive with it. Like let's say uh, large language models that are developed and you write into ChatGBT. That's a uh, that's a very, in a way, it's a lazy approach because we're just letting um, this machine uh, read all our data and we're super passive about it. And then we it kind of runs the shows show because we are now just using it to to search search for information. And so I want to like, we should take charge of how it is, um, like the fact that it is spouting bullshit, that it's being eloquent, but it's spouting bullshit. We should like take charge of that. We should say, well, that's not correct. That's not okay. That's actually not good technology. That's really crappy technology. And I think there are a lot of people who said, I asked ChatGTV this and they told me that, but it's not right. And then they're like, but it must be because it's technology. I'm like, what? No, no, like technology cannot run us. It's a little bit like, you know, how human, we all got mobile phones. Now we're all like running around with mobile phones. This is a very recent development in, in our human history. And some of those mobile phones are running us. They, they, people have like notifications flaring up all the time. Bing, bing. And you have those red bad, bad badges on your applications and they're just distracting you and they're distracting everyone who has that. 
Um, what I do with my mobile phone is I always take off all the notifications. If I load a new app, immediately go into the notifications because I want, don't want that app to dominate my life. Mm -hmm. I want that app to do that thing I wanted to do, and that's it. Like, shut up. You're you're like working for me. I'm not working for you, or you're not working me. Uh, working, no me and money me. So that's something I think this passiveness humans have about technology. Oh, I guess it's just like that. Oh yeah, I guess that's that's it. And this uh, complacency—it's not even complacency. It's just um, like non. What would you call it? Like people don't think they can affect it. Maybe it's even yeah. that. Maybe they are a bit. There's nothing I can do. Like it's, it is what it is kind of a perspective, right? It is what it is. There's nothing I can do, but I think there's a lot we can do or just by being really demanding. So I really appreciate, you know, humanists who are going on barricades and saying, no, this is not right. But they're usually very destructive again. They're saying like, just don't have any technology. It goes to the extreme. Sometimes. It goes to the extreme and that's not... That's right. not either. the answer isn't throw your phone away. No, it's just right. take charge of your phone, mm -hmm. take charge of your applications. I, I love the perspective here that you're talking about around shifting from a passive uh, approach to an active one. And um, I, I, I get the feeling that it's a little bit different advice when you're talking to sort of the consumer of the technology versus if you're talking to you know the the vendor or the organization or somebody who's trying to harness the technology for some kind of a product or service um can you maybe talk a little bit more about like how might a consumer take a more active approach around the technology especially around ai for example versus how might a organization or a company take more of an active approach around technology like ai I don't see a big difference there because as a consumer, we're using technology to um, lead better lives or have time, more time for something. And the same thing is for companies. Companies use technology to save on time because time is money or to save on effort or do something better. So I don't really see, see a difference there. Um, in but then like for a consumer who's just using um, an application that's made for them, um, the, the, maybe the the repertoire of or the things they can do to control it is more limited. So companies can can be more demanding because they also they're usually um, investing so much money that they can already have this vendor relationship and say that these are the things I want. But otherwise, I don't really see huge differences there. Well, so so bring this back to like mm -hmm. knowledge graphs and, and AI and large language models and stuff. It, it just if we look at the machine learning and the created models, if it, right now, if you just focus on, yeah, just go use the data and go learn from that, and that's all you do, and I'm not, the humans are not putting their hands in there, right, then that's like the passive approach, let's go yes. do this, right, but a human, uh, the, 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 the user slash organizational active approach and say, well, I'm going to put in, define the stuff that is critical to us, right, it's it's the the facts, the the context, right, yeah. the, the rules of the game, and and that's how I that's how I I'm being active and providing that and the combination of these two things together yeah. is what is how is what we should strive for. 
Yeah. And now in, in this like context, it's such a hot topic. I don't want to really avoid it, but in the context of using large language models, so in companies use large language models and consumers are using ChatGPT, both can take charge and be, be more active um, cons- uh, use, users of, of that technology because um, companies can actually, you know, use knowledge graphs to, to build um, structured knowledge of their domain and say that we have these, this is, these are the facts inside our company they're human curated and then they can um give the large language but actually they can copy paste rdf to to those machines Mm -hmm. and have them um have them know they were spouting bullshit before they either now are actually eloquently still and giving out facts because they've been infused with facts that they've been given the right context but you know consumers can do this too like in ChatGPT, when you're having a conversation, you actually have quite a lot of power as a consumer, just a private citizen, to to put their um, inside their information. Be like, no, this is the fact, and this is the, the other fact, and that's uh, incorrect. And now, please give me the answer, or now, like regarding this, please formulate it again, and then you actually get the correct answer. So, if consumers, you know, want to. Um, you know, create a correct text or something. So, so this like infusing, like not just being a passive receiver of the large language model and be like, you know what, I'm going to train you. I'm going to teach you this stuff. And there's even technology out there that enables you to do that. No. And there, there was a really good talk here, just in mm-hmm. KGC, if I can refer to that. Yeah. That was saying exactly the same thing. So Andrea Volpini from Wordlift. So Wordlift helps uh, companies to do SEO. And he was talking about how people aren't searching Google necessarily more, but they're searching in in, um, ChatGPT, which is kind of a huge shift in consumer behavior. And he was saying that the competitive edge for companies, when they start also embracing large language model technology, isn't necessarily in the, the kind of model or the amount of servers that run those models in, but it's actually in a creating a well-created knowledge base for their company and, and infusing the large language models with, with this knowledge. And that's going to bring them their competitive edge. Yeah, something I've been seeing in the market, uh, I mean, and this has just been the last like one or two months now, because with all the craze of, of GPT is if, if this cool versus, useful right so if 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 folks are focused just on the coolness it's because they're looking at they're playing around with gpt and then and, and that's it oh yeah it's really cool to come up with the recipe and go shift the send the the, the ingredients the instant card and all that stuff right this was like one of the presentations that was at that, that came up at a couple of weeks ago um yeah, that's cool that's cool but um how is this useful for my organization right i think to bring in your organization, you need to be active mm. to be able to say, okay, here are the things that I care about, right? This is the context to make sure. Yeah. And another another awesome, one of my favorite talks at TED was from Jajin Choi. Um, she's a professor in Washington, a MacArthur Genius Fellow, and she's like, well, these large language models, yeah, they're really great at some things, but they're also really stupid at some other things. Yes. Uh, and I think how the, the combination here is to have common sense knowledge graphs to be able to 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 provide all that context. And I think the best analogy that I get there is that you can't get to the moon by making the tallest building a little bit taller every day. Yep. So, yeah. Well, and I really like uh, Katarina your comments about passing the facts to the LLM, because I think that uh, folks, I I think most folks haven't really put two and two together on this yet. 
where they just kind of assume that chat GPT and LLMs and things like that are much more of just a, it's just a language paradigm, they think, right? They think it's just all about language. But um, some of the best applications of this technology are really when you give it good context, right? And you say, you know, consider that, my, you know, my name is this, consider that, you know, this is how our business operates, consider that this is the, you know, framework I want you to think in, okay, now here's my question. And, and uh, let me pass that to you. And knowledge graphs are actually one of the best ways to represent facts to a system. There's also a humanistic point of view here as well, which is that um, if you just base all the output of technology on data. So that's a passive approach. You just like, look at my data, look at how I behave and act like that, or like give me the answers. Um, then it probably will just give you the ugly truth of what you're currently at, where, where we as, as humans, we're, we're racist, we have all these social problems and we're like doing all these bad things as humans. Um, but we do have ideals and those ideals um, improve us or give us a goal to which to strive to and become better as human beings. These ideals were, were very much, I think they are in a way shared as well. And I see that infusing large language models, like taking the active role and giving it facts, you can also give it ideals. It's like, I know our data is racist, but please don't be racist. And this is how you're not racist. So we can also like tell it to be more like the ideal of what we want to be. It's not like don't do like don't do as yeah. I do, do as I say. Right. That's super interesting. I mean, in the same way that you can tell, you know, um, it to say something in the uh, in the voice of John Lennon or something like that. Right. You're basically asking, I want you to be within this framing. Yeah, no, the, the, I love how we're actually getting very philosophical on this, but but these are the these are the things that we need to start thinking about, right? Otherwise, Sorry. it's like, otherwise it's like, yeah, just throwing stuff at the wall and see what sticks, and just kind of thinking that that that's the way how life is, and, and we really, this is the point in time in a we're in a paradigm shift, an inflection point, and this is where I think the leaders in the room are the ones who need to be critical and thinking about this stuff right now. Yeah. Um, so I ask, are you a leader or are you a follower? If you're a follower, you're just going to call, follow, you're going to be passive around the stuff, right? And fine, not everybody's going to be, you have to be a leader and be an active. But if you want to go stand out, lead, think about being active around this. And I think our message here is, I mean, we're, we're very biased. We come from this community stuff, but because we genuinely believe that this is the right thing to go do, thinking about knowledge. Um, I'm interested, like kind of shifting kind of a little bit gears into your experience and how, how you're seeing within IKEA stuff. Uh, how are how are the the, the folks your the teams that you're working with seeing this combination of oh we got machine learning and you got uh, knowledge graphs like how is this combination uh, happening internally? Yeah, it's really interesting. So before IKEA, I used to work for Europe's biggest um, fashion e-commerce platform Zalando, and there like I think on my first day at my job, <laughs> this um, person walked to me and said um, knowledge graphs. Uh, I think machine learning does it better. So that was the, the general attitude. <clears throat> and Zalando was really big on data science and machine learning. So I felt like the, the odd one in the crowd every time I was talking about this. And I was kind of always dismissed. Um, but now in IKEA and um, also like towards the end of my career in Zalando, uh, I noticed a shift. I noticed a shift in data science. People were like, you have that structured knowledge. I want it. 
that would be good. That would make my machine learning thing better if you have that structured knowledge. Like that's what I'm getting at IKEA. We started like the moment ChatGPT came live and people were like, oh, this is the solution. We actually, the team that was responsible for bringing large language models into IKEA um, said, oh, we have a knowledge graph team, great bring us the structured knowledge. Like that shift has happened now. And I've, I've really seen it. So in IKEA, we're all talking about uh, the hybrid approach and even management um, comes to us and says, uh, you're now being made um, like redundant because of large language models. They're like testing us to see if we're saying, no, we are not because we need structured knowledge. They're like, yeah, that's the right answer. So even management knows this now in IKEA or in, at least in inter-IKEA systems, maybe. Now this is this this is a fascinating thing to go see because um, the the there we're we're we are hitting some an, an inflection point around this right and it's mm. the technologies are coming together but it's all about getting that people right the cultural change I mean this is always a theme I mean, three years Tim of us talking what is the general yeah. theme of everything <laughs> it's just people around this right people and change management yeah and and I, I compare I'm comparing usually this this paradigm shift in knowledge graphs to the paradigm shift that happened in software de development 10 or so years ago when DevOps came. So DevOps was a huge shift in how we build and operate software because it, it introduced that whole continuous integration, continuous development idea, and it was very foreign to what, how it was done before. And I actually have like friends in Finland who are, we're also the frontier of DevOps, and they said that they just had to like tackle it use case by use case. It's exactly what we're doing now as well. Use case by use case, we're trying to bring forth that a knowledge graph would make sense. That they just had to like do a lot of work, do a show, be persistent, and just keep on going. And then at some point, it did break through. And there were just some who first adopted it, others were still being traditional. And then slowly and slowly, it kind of grew and became the standard approach. This is exciting. And it always helps when Google does it, right? <laughs> <laughs> True story. So we, we wanted to get into one of the things you talked about, the, the pyramid. This is something we've been talking about. So you, you, you had a talk today, and you talked about the whole, your, your pyramid layers. Can you, can you expand on this? And, and, and uh, what you wrote, you can say it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so <clears throat> um, the pyramid, which, I mean, really, is it a pyramid? looks more like a triangle on, on paper, but it's, it's that um, the three layers of a knowledge graph. Uh, I remember I talked to you about it and you're like, Katarina, you need to write about this thing. And that's how I um, wrote my blog post about it um, as well. So, so if you want to kind of read more about what it is, but the idea is, and it's not my idea, this comes from Dave McComb from Semantic Arts, is that um, to divide the knowledge graph in terms of, um, size into three layers. Uh, the top tip, the small bit, is the ontology. So that's the class definition, could call it the schema, the properties, uh, the data model, that's on top and it's, it runs in the hundreds. It's like hundreds, hundreds of class and property and definition to you know, um, map out a certain domain. And then the, the middle layer, uh, which is like medium large is it's like in the thousands is that is your collection of taxonomies another term for it is control vocabulary or categories 
So um, I also say that there, if you look at the knowledge graph, they're the instances that have the highest page rank because all the other instances are pointing towards there. Mm -hmm. An example from Ikea, we have products uh, and um, every product has um, a material, but the and we have thousands, tens of thousands of products, but the uh, selection of materials is in the tens, it's like 20 or so. So they are from the tens of thousands of products, each one has one or two materials. So they, you do the math and that material node in the knowledge graph has a high page rank. Mm -hmm. These are very special instances and it's good to pre-define pre them, curate them and have them in your taxonomies. And then the last layer, the biggest one, which is in the millions, is the actual data. So this would be like every single product we sell in IKEA um, connected to, to you know, its categorization with its data, with its data attributes. And, and with its connection to other products and so on. So those three layers really help um, me at least to explain the knowledge graph to the stakeholders and say that the, we, have, we have a little bit of like schema going on here. Then we need expert teams to, you know, the experts on materials to create the taxonomy for the materials and the expert on customer experience to create the taxonomy on activities like sleeping, this bed is good for sleeping, this pillow is good for sleeping. And, and then we have that, that big amount of connected data of all the products and you know everything that goes with that, designers and so on. And, and that should never be done manually, that should be generated. That kind of like that should be like or calculated from a data source or transformed from somewhere else. So that those three layers um, is I use it always as an educational material as for, for non-tech people who have never heard about knowledge graphs to explain what the um, knowledge graph is about, what like what is inside of it and what mm -hmm. makes. So, so there's also sort of a, uh, to make sure I'm understanding correctly, there's like a fourth aspect of the three things, which is like the data, the source data, where everything's kind of coming from. Yes. And then the knowledge graph itself is the three layers you mentioned. It's the, it's the, the, the concepts, the, the, the categories, which are more empowered, right? Uh, and then the data, but in this, in the three layers, that data is the connected data, the, the sort of uh, the knowledge graph facts. Effectively, that and or the data graph. I mean, data graph is another term for it. And um, one of the th one of the things that when we were discussing about this stuff it was a while ago. I mean, probably mm -hmm. we started discussing on this particular topic like over a year ago. And it's kind of in the height of of data mesh. And I think you remember it's like yeah. this is an interesting aspect. The the, the, the connecting it together is that the, the the first two layers, the hundred, the hundreds, and the thousands. Mm -hmm. This is technically something that can and probably you argue that should be centralized. And on that bottom layer, it's something that depending where you are, like yes. that can be decentralized or not. In terms of this is the, the thing, like now you can use this, uh, the three layers um, to reflect it against many things. In terms of authorship, uh, the first layer, the, the top layer uh, is centrally defined. But, By the way, can, can you give on, on what you're going through? Can you give some examples specifically? Like, yes, yeah. because I guess everybody, so, I would, but everybody who is listening is yeah. probably bought something at IKEA, so they can. Okay. So, so on, on on the top layer, uh, we centrally define that we sell products, 
product is a class. Um, we um, have material. They are made out of a material, so we can all agree on material. Um, they are meant for a certain activity, so we can like talk about activities. So that's a very little ontology that we define. Now, on the second layer, uh, we have um, the psychologists who know so much about our customers and every the specialists they define what those activities are there's actually a lady nike one lady who defines the 12 activities that we are um, <laughs> designing our products for and um and then and then we have the team that's responsible for the expertise on the material so they define the set of different kind of materials like wood or metal etc and um but the products, their instances are not on that uh, middle layer, so they're not there. But this is, the authorship is decentralized for that second layer because we, it needs to be distributed across experts in the organization. But I'm we're but, getting, but, but, but there's not know, like multiple definitions of activity. No. There is one. There's one. There's one. Um, a set one of activities. Exactly. Okay. And there is a central thing coming to soon. But the authorship is good to know that the, for the first one, it's centralized. And the second one is decentralized. And, and for the for the third one, the authorship is should nobody should be a human should not be responsible for it. It's more like um, created from through mappings or through recipes on how that is created because it's in the millions and nobody manually writes down every million uh, thing. But in terms of storage, the top layer and the, the uh, middle layer, they are centrally stored because we need to have a central source of truth, a source of truth, like one place from where you can find all the taxonomies, all the definitions from those different expert teams, but they should all be in the same place. Um, in our case, it's in GitHub, in one repository in GitHub, as TTL files, as RDF files. Um, and then the bottom layer can be central, but doesn't have to be. It can be decentralized, can be virtualized, doesn't have to be in, uh, in a um, draft database, can be in relational database because you can just virtualize the access to through, through like the knowledge graph. Um, and and that, that way you can do this data mesh approach with it because it could sit with the teams only in the data. I, I I really really love this this kind of partition of these layers because um, I, last night I was having just dinner with some folks and we were we got to the same topic of like how many concepts are there within an organization and it was like yeah we were just throwing numbers out like I think about in the retail e-commerce it's like everybody thinks that they're different but there's like these core concepts yeah. are the same and these are going to be in the hundreds max and then you keep expanding then yes you're the way how you define something specific or other taxonomies maybe specific to you but that probably goes down to the thousands and so forth so i think this is a great way of uh, of, of figuring out also what are you what are you focusing on you're more at a higher level that you need yes. to need to cover many domains mm -hmm. or you're, you're getting more specific so I, I really 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 like this approach um, okay, so other topic I wanted to talk to you about was um, even you brought this in your talk today is let's connect this with the business. Like, how is this helping? Like, defining these ontologies, these ontologies and the knowledge. How is how is this helping IKEA, for example, to make more money, save more money? <laughs> so, um, really, um, the way it helps IKEA the best is. Um, I don't know if you know, not many people who shop at IKEA realize that it's a 
very thought of experience, like thought out experience. Every single detail you see in the store, someone's gone there and put it there in a special place. And it looks the same if you've gone to an Ikea in Europe or in, in the US or in Japan. Yes, there's some some like local variations, but it's always a very set experience, always kind of the same experience. Many times I compare it to this alone. I find it is it is almost like theatrical, but but it, and it's what we call the IKEA magic, and it means that there's like a lot of like human thought and human touch put into it. Now, if you, it's really hard to translate this magic into IKEA.com um, because like the way it works today is we have these um, our coworkers in the IKEA stores reading PDFs with you know general instructions and then they are very intelligent humans they are these like really good um real intelligence <laughs> models that then can translate these pdfs and put put the things together and it creates this really uniform um in, in uniform experience throughout the and throughout the world online this is really hard because now we have uh, machines and applications doing the, the thing and so we need to bring the magic of ikea online um, one thing is that we we actually have we're selling accessories with furniture so that's that's like one mechanism the very established mechanism so if you if you look at a sofa and they're on the floor there are like 25 or so sofas uh, on display the interior designers working in Ikea match them with accessories like really nice cushions or throws or like laptop tray or lint roller to get all the, the dust off or the, the cat and dog hairs off. And, um, and so online, what we do is uh, we, we talk to the interior designers who have this mental model of how they match accessories with furniture. And we translate that in the knowledge graph. We say that, okay, it's like indoor sofas should be matched with indoor cushions and throws of a certain size and these main care and maintenance products. So then uh, we translate that into rules because the mental model is logical. So we translate that into rules using product attributes, not actual products. We're not matching actual products with others because that's not feasible. We have tens of thousands of products. We shouldn't do that. So we create these general rules from which we then can calculate all of the thousands of sofas that we actually are selling in Ikea with the tens of throws and tens of cushions and the lint roller. And, and, and then we combine them automatically and generate these, these accessory to furniture connections on, on that bottom layer in the data graph. That's, that's one application we work with. I mean, there's a lot, yeah, well, but this is the one we're working on currently. One before was uh, the, our first one that we went live with was how we can upsell um, products. So customers looking at, at a product and we always guarantee the best price, but sometimes we have also like other equivalent products that, you know, put a little bit more money, you get like really good, really good quality and like really kind of thought about and, and designs. So, so we, we use those upsell in this upsell information and that was actually missing, missing in the data. So the data had uh, one part of it, but it didn't really know what to upsell to. So that we um, are curating in the knowledge graph as well. Interesting, interesting. I, I know one other use case that um, that you talked to Juan about in the past is around like interior designers 
and being able to get some of the knowledge out of them and into a, a more structured format. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that example as well? Yeah, so it's, it's exactly that accessory to furniture um, knowledge, the mental model that the interior designers hold. Um, so that's the first thing where we're, you know, trying to pick the brains of the interior designers, at least with this little mechanism of matching accessory with furniture. Um, but there's more that we could do because we can also like the next one that we're tackling is um, product similarity. So interior designers, you know, there's a, somebody comes in and is like, this is white sofa, so online, do you have it? It's like, no, sorry, that's been long out of stock. I'm sorry we stopped selling that last season. I'm really sorry, but might I interest you in this one, which is very similar. And the interior designers are like, you know, like has this, like knows why it is similar, not just like, oh, white couch, yeah, white couches are over there, but oh, that one, yes, I know the, the designer and yeah, yeah, the style was, okay, this is beige, but it really drives the same thing and it kind of gives it a nice new look, right? So so that that information, that like magic and quality you get in, in Ikea. Well, do, but could it, could it, couldn't you just argue that, why, why do we need all this knowledge? Like, let's just go look at machine learning, kernel show all the sales data, created models out of that. Like, why isn't that enough? Uh, yes, you could do this with computer vision, visual similarity. It's um, actually quite, um, like, quite, it, it doesn't really pick up on the style nuances. So it will mo mostly look like the statistics don't, like, get to that level it doesn't get to that level of uh, style similarity because there's a little bit like certain details that, that are always a slightly different uh, make it the, the same style so it will get to the shape it will get to the color and the other thing it doesn't reach when you do computer vision is price level so price level is another one if you have if you're certain like operating in a certain budget um you, you we want to match that with with a similarity and I don't think computer vision can, like we, we haven't seen it being able to match that. Plus it's currently has a hard time recognizing these products. This is faster. This is just faster than training the model sometimes. And that's why we're kind of doing that approach because we already have that knowledge and it, it is just vector similarity. It's graph embedding similarity. There's like algorithms there that with which we can already do this, um, like inside the graph, like because the products are in the graph information and there's that. And we, it's just like easier to do it. I mean, one of the interesting things that you've been saying in these last examples, um, and this may be just specific to IKEA, but I think I think it resonates with different types of organizations. Is like this magic, this experience that you want to go offer, right? And, yeah. and so one can you could argue that if if, if you, you truly have a, a you're truly customer focused, and you and you th there is an essence of your organization that you want to transmit to, to, to your customers all the time, then it's that personal touchy feeling that you want to be able to kind of, that, 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 that the knowledge is being active around it. Yeah. If it's all about like, oh, just be all mechanical, I'm just going to sell things, go in and out, like, I don't, I don't care where you are, just don't know. Yeah. Then, then yeah, maybe that's not it, but maybe the, your, your competitive edge, the differentiator is that magic. Um, so yeah. Yeah, how do you deal with that? I think this, this is, this is yeah. time to think it. One thing I want to ask that's related to this, it goes a little bit technology and abstract oriented, but I'm very curious about your opinion, uh, Katarina, is so, you know, when we when the AI movement especially really started to pick up steam in recent times, right, sort of the recent set of iterations around it, 
first the excitement was centered a lot around like the algorithm design. Like it was algorithmic centric, architecture centric AI, right? Um, and, you know, deep learning, et cetera, et cetera, computer vision, exciting enhancements, right? And then we've kind of entered the second phase of that, which was more, you know, I, I think Andrew Ng, whether he came up with it or not, really pushed it right around data centric AI, right? Oh, the, you know, we've kind of maxed out. I mean, there's always going to be algorithmic innovation, but really it's all about the data. You got to have the right data. You got to, it's all about having the right data, right? Um, are we kind of moving now into a third paradigm of realization here? which is like to the comment you made of like how fast you can train the model, right? That like, yes, you could throw a billion pictures of Ikea products at a computer vision product with along with, you know, some unstructured, some tagging, right? Um, and that's an approach and you're gonna get somewhere, something useful will come out of it, but also a lot of things will not be useful with that. Are we moving into a third paradigm now? And I'm going to get into the bad habit that I often do with Juan here and, and start coining things. But, you know, let's call it knowledge centric AI, where actually what we're doing is we're designing knowledge. And sure, there's a lot of practical reasons why you do that. But one very practical reason for data teams to do that is actually to accelerate the time to train the model, make the model more accurate, make the model smaller. Right. Um, I, anyways, I'm kind of ranting here. I'm curious about your, your thoughts on what I'm saying so far. Um, I mean, I don't know. We're all converts. So we'll be saying yes, knowledge, <laughs> like knowledge left us the way it should be. But it's like a use case by use case thing. Hmm. And there's also one more aspect of instead of like training a model to do one thing, let's rather um, capture the why. Um, to like the, the the rule that drives like be the knowledge driven take the knowledge driven approach and capture this why because there's only there's one more reason for it it's not just that it's smaller and you can make it sometimes faster than than teaching it but it's also because somebody else can reuse it so somebody else can actually who has a completely different use case is happy that you organize that part of the knowledge for them in a machine readable format because now they can come and reuse it this is actually super funny like so i said that we could do this like like we could do these like product similarity recommendations with with computer vision well one fun twist to the story is once we started doing this like ac these accessories these pillows go well with sofas these throws computer vision guys who were <laughs> came to us and said you have structured information of like a pillow can be found usually next to a sofa give that to us, we need it. Because our machine learning model that's trying to recognize products out of pictures needs that. Because now we're now we're, it's trying to guess from all the products, but with your information of things that actually go well with, with each other are usually found together with each other, um, helps us to bring down the, the, the level of calculation and make it more accurate. The, the, so I really, I really like how you framed this out, Tim, about like an algorithmic centric AI, data centric, mm -hmm. like a knowledge centric. And and so for my first thought was like maybe this is like a maturity curve. Like oh yes, you need to get into the knowledge, and that that knowledge is better than just the data, better than algorithm. And um, I don't know if it's better. But I, I do probably see it as a spectrum like of expressivity, like or or maybe not even expressivity. It's like I, I, I can uh, uh, more accuracy or something. So 
for some use cases, you just maybe find just the algorithmic approach and okay. For some other use cases, you 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 get with data you can get better. And then for other use cases, you need knowledge. But for there may be use cases like, oh, with the data, it's enough. Like actually investing more into the knowledge is not going to get me better, improve my accuracy, whatever. So the ROI on doing that is not not worth it for what I want to go do. Uh, I could just accomplish it with the, just with data without the knowledge. Uh, but I think it's, for the, in this particular example of, of the pillows, it's like, I think in your case, I can imagine, oh, they kind of hit a wall. Like we can't improve this anymore. And it's actually not enough. We really need to go improve this to make this better, to make this actually usable. And they're like, oh, this other knowledge thing, like that can help me to make it better. So, yeah. but for other scenarios, they probably didn't need it. Exactly. But this is the paradigm shift we're talking about. This is the, that we just need a better model for data. So it's not enough for the data to lie around. And again, the passive approach, but it's good to, you know, somebody to do a bit of KonMari for the data. Yeah. It's actually really good because then it's not only that I understand it, but others will understand it and the machine will understand it better. And it's, it's just, you know, you said, Tim, you want to keep your house clean. There's a reason why you want to keep it clean. And this is about keeping your data clean and organized and organized, put into nice boxes and from where you can pick them up and find them better. So be before we head out to our lightning round, there's one more topic. And it's a, it's, a, it's not a topic that we've discussed over the last year and so forth, which is upskilling the subject matter experts to be these knowledge savvy ontologists, right? We upskilled the, the interior designers, and we've we've yeah. we've we've talked about this for a long. You've been very kind of on this mission. Like, what is this? How's it going? <laughs> so last year, I was talking about how we have this like grand vision. We're going to take IKEA experts, and we're going to teach them about ontologies and and taxonomies. And I, I was telling about all these games that we're playing for them to learn. This is a class. This is an instance. Um, like just a lot of like different thoughts uh, work that we put into it. And that was because we were working on this hypothesis. We're going to take these IKEA experts that have like almost like 20 years of IKEA interior designer knowledge. And, um, and then they're going to be, you know, writing RDF in the end. And this is, they're going to be supercharged, like a fantastic, like IKEA notch graph inputters and, and authors. And, um, since then, we discovered and realized that um, it's not feasible for them to become full-fledged ontologists. So we first thought that that's what's going to happen. Like, but just like tell them about all. Oh, but why did you think you that was that was something possible? Well, we thought that that was possible. That was kind of we just assumed it because my boss Adam Grestesh, who actually started the whole IKEA Knowledge Graph project and hired me he's like that because he's he was started as an interior designer at ikea he then later went into ux design and then learned there he saw all these problems with data and learned about knowledge graphs and realized that's what i need to drive better experiences and then now he's like you know he can read ttl he writes sparkle on and he thought yeah we're going to like we're going to have other ikea people who are going to become like me then we realized that it's it's kind of hard it's really hard for to to be both to to know so much about this like humanistic side and to then also be able to translate it to computers and think like an ontologist that ultimately either you're like a special person like adam or you really need an i and a degree in it to to be that 
So, so we kind of we changed our strategy a little bit, and now we're seeing them more as tool-enabled, knowledge graph-aware domain experts. So we're now paying much more attention into getting them the right kind of tooling. They're still participating in my Sparkle course that I keep for our other developers, and they're kind of learning about it. And I think one of them is actually, she's now going to a Udemy course to learn about RDF and Sparkle. She, she like with time, she might actually learn this. But the other said, you know what? I'm not, I'm not interested in being like learning to become an ontologist. I just like I understand what we're doing here, and I want to keep on doing it. But give me the tools with which I can do this. And we. We just saw that it's like yeah, so, so, so in a way it's like oh we saw this unicorn which yeah. is your boss like yeah. oh we can do more of that but in reality that was uh that, yeah. that was harder he wanted to clone himself and then he realized that's not necessarily possible maybe he'll realize that he's actually a special person yeah like a unicorn i i have one more quick question before you before we kind of go to our, our lightning round and stuff which is as you look to the future um you know within Ikea, right? Um, is there a use case or or something that you're most excited about that is maybe futuristic or pushing the envelope on things or, you know, that, that you think is uh, is very interesting? Yes, cookie, cookie-less personalization on Ikea.com. That's my pet peeve currently. That's what I'm super excited about. Ethical personalization, transparent, non-creepy, recommendations, things that does, like says, you know, you click on this and this, this is the, the kind of idea we're having about you. Is this correct? Um, do you want me, like, I noticed that you were looking at baby beds, but you're not looking at them anymore. Should I forget this? Like, you know, someone who's like, like a personalization that's actually decent and yeah, I always say, non-creepy. I like that. Yeah, that's the honest no BS there. Like, yeah, all these still this personalization, that's freaking creepy. So yeah. yeah. Um, or or just stupid. That, Most that, of the personalization that, that, is just stupid. It's like, I booked the flights already. Shut up. I don't need to book them again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or Amazon telling me, are you ready to buy that uh that vacuum cleaner? I bought one last week. <laughs> yeah, sure. Come on. All right, uh, time flies when you're having fun. We gotta, we gotta get to a couple more things. I know, we'll get to. All right, AI minute. One minute to rant about anything you want about AI. Ready, set, go. Okay, AI is just another tool. Don't be so emotional about it. It's not going to kill you unless you let it kill you. <laughs> so forget about Terminator. You're your own Terminator in your passiveness. Just um see ai as another tool also ai art is just photography it's like it is just another tool you know we had fine arts with painting painters and then we had photography cameras with photography that's not art and now they're doing ai art and like that's not art well if there's a human behind doing ar it's going to be art all right less 40, than a minute 40 seconds perfect you got you 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 got your thing about the AI. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, lightning round uh, presented by Data World. Let me kick it off. So, is the rise of large language models like ChatGPT causing an inflection point for knowledge graphs? What's inflection point? I mean, it's a tippy. We're tipping, right? Things things are changing. Right. Yeah. Hockey stick. Um, it's not. No, it's it's just. Um, 
it could just kind of gives us more fire under the ass to say like now you really need us and this is um actually necessary it it's just a maybe it's it's becoming so fast and so ridiculous that we now need that grounding that we get from knowledge graphs so in that sense but i don't think it's a, a tipping point for us it's just it's been a long development to get here all right tim you go next maybe if llms are helping us go to the moon sometimes we need a little gravity to keep us settled right <laughs> Um, back from the moon as well, so we can land home. That's true. We have to make sure we can come back too. Uh, second question is, um, was it easy to teach folks about Knowledge Graph at a company like IKEA? Yes, because in IKEA, the humanistic side is so important. <clears throat> so when I told them that this is the non-creepy AI, this is the one where humans have a say, and that machines kind of know a little bit more about humans, they were super adaptable to it. They were like, they were, they didn't like machine learning. They were like, that's horrible. They were getting the Terminator creeps. And like, I don't want it. But when I told them, hey, we have this friendly, transparent, human takes control over everything, um, um, AI, and that's the knowledge graphs, they're actually really taking on to it. This humanistic, this is interesting. An interesting uh, pattern there, like, uh companies who really care about people yeah. uh next question will ai development teams learn and build knowledge graph expertise on their own or do they need to hire externally i think everyone who invests in knowledge graphs uh, finds themselves to needing to hire an ontologist so they can learn about sparkle like de developers can learn sparkle and they can learn rdf as a standard but they do have a hard time to have this ontological thinking where you need to you know, designed for um, description logic. So they do need those people. Well, just, wow, that's, um, I just took a note on that. I think that's a very interesting, that developers can learn the sparkle, but you know, you need an ontologist with the description logic. I think that's a really good takeaway. Um, all right, last lightning round question for you. Will data teams be the one to drive this knowledge capture and knowledge design, or should a different team be doing that? No, it should be the business. It should be the, the management who's saying, like, I don't understand our data. I cannot ask this question or this question takes me to 20 days to be answered. I want it to be answered in 20 seconds. So it definitely needs to be management who drives the lunch crowd. This? All right. I was actually thinking you were going to say the data team, right? Okay. They're too low in the food chain. <laughs> <laughs> More honest, no BSness coming out. Less data engineers asking for knowledge graph. More, more CEOs asking for knowledge graph. There you go. All right. We got a lot of notes. Tim, take us away. Takeaway time. Takeaway time. So um, you, we started off by talking about how humans shouldn't be run by technology. We shouldn't be passive. We should take control. We should have agency. We should be active with technology. Uh, and things like ChatGPT uh, provide a new opportunity for us to be kind of lazy and let it run us instead of us doing the work to, to make it smarter, to make it better, to make it more responsible for it to do better things for us. Um, you talked about mobile phones for an example, right? You don't you don't have to throw away the mobile phone in order to uh, in order to get control of things, uh, but you do have to take active action, right? Um, we should take charge of the fact that AI is spouting BS and things like that. 
um, if facts, uh, if it's saying things that aren't facts, so we need to take take charge and, and we have to accept that, that that's crappy. That, that can't be something that we accept. It has to be something we address. Um, and uh, we don't have to take the attitude of it. Uh, it is what it is. Um, we talked about how, um, you know, is there a difference between companies taking an active approach with with AI and with technology versus consumers taking an active approach? And you mentioned that it it's not necessarily that different, um, even though maybe consumers have a little less agency, right? Like in the phone example, you can only configure the notifications based on what it lets you configure, right? But you do still have some control. As companies, maybe we have a greater realm of control, but ultimately we still have to choose to take that action uh, and choose to take that active role. Um, in the context of la large language learning models, everyone can take more actions as learning of, the uh, of users of the technology. For example, organizations could be creating a knowledge graph to create structured knowledge and passing that onto the AI. Even consumers can do something like this, right? Where you can tell ChatGPT some facts, some context, either part of your prompt or part of your session, and now it's going to have more grounding, right? It's going to spout less BS, less hallucinations, right? So I think this is a, a new skill that we're all learning um, around how to curate structured knowledge and use it to get better results, get better answers, get faster answers. Whether you think of it as a knowledge graph or not, that's essentially what you're doing. You're building a little tiny knowledge graph in, in, that, in the context of that right there. Um, uh, last, before I switch it over to you, Juan, we talked a little bit about machine learning versus AI. Um, you really emphasize the importance of this humanistic factor um, that uh, when you take more of a structured approach to knowledge, um, you're really uh, you're creating facts and you're giving AI facts. Um, and uh, in the past, uh, you know, folks may have told you, you know, machine learning does it better than KG or something like that. But there's a shift happening where folks are saying, oh, structured knowledge would actually make my model better. Um, and there's a paradigm shift starting to happen, similar to what happened with DevOps maybe 10 years ago around building, deploying, and managing software. That same thing is starting to happen now with machine learning, KG, and AI. Juan, over to you. Well, we got we, so, so much more to go. So when we went over the whole the three layers, right, the knowledge graph, the, the, the hundreds of concepts, the thousands of categories, the millions of data, right? So the, the, the concepts are going to be like the your example for Ikea, it's like, oh, a product, that's a class, it's a concept, they're made of materials and has, has activities, right? That's that first layer, there's going to be hundreds of those. Uh, and then we go into the second layer, which is going to be the thousands, which now we get into like, okay, so we're going to go do activities. Well, there are 12 activities. Actually, in, in, in Ikea's case, it's just literally one person who's in charge centrally to go to find those things. And then there are other types of materials, there's wood and metal and so forth. That first two layers should be stored centrally so everyone can find that. And that third layer can go to the millions. That th this could be central. This could be decentralized. It, it could be in a graph. It could be in a database. It could be virtual. It could, whatever it is. And this is now I'm starting to connect all the different data uh, back to connecting to those two first layers. And this should be automatic because nobody's going to be manually uh, curating any of these millions of things. So I think I really like these, these three layers. And you have a blog post about that. Highly recommend folks to go take a look at it. Um, Let's connect this to business value. Like how is this providing, making more money, saving more money, right? I think it's really interesting for a company like Ikea that you have this whole human side, the, the Ikea magic, which actually when you go inside a physical store, things are packed and are presented in a way because it's been thought out about it. Now, how do you translate that magic inside of the digital, the dot com? Well, it's not there and we and you want to get it there. So 
providing all that uh, that expertise in the form of the knowledge graph like that that that's how you're achieving it because at the end you want to go sell more accessories with the furniture right make it easier to go shop and and I think by mining kind of understanding how interior designers think about it, it helps to go drive upsells, product similarities, and so forth. Um, at the end, people are doing already things with computer vision, but it's actually not as good for like managing prices. So you, this helps for some sort of, of, of computer vision. Uh, we we had this discussion around like going from an algorithmic-centric AI, data-centric, knowledge-centric, and it's like seems like, yeah, you really need to understand the use cases. And depending on the use cases, you need to invest more on this. Um, and then we kind of wrapped up with, hey, upskilling subject matter experts. It kind of seems like a great idea. Uh, in theory, uh, maybe there's some possibilities that we could have upskill them, uh, but there's probably going to be unicorns around that. So really what, you, what you've uh, kind of uh, uh, adopted is they need to be tool-enabled and knowledge graph aware, uh, these subject matter experts. Uh, and finally, what are you excited about next? A non-creepy, cookie-less digital personalization. All right. Yes. How did we do? Anything we yeah. missed? Well, well done. <laughs> I felt like my life flashed before my eyes. <laughs> well, uh, this was all you. So, hey, we're, let's wrap this up. Three final questions quickly. What's your advice? Who should we invite next? What resources do you follow? Um, my advice is, um, like, go and look at other fields, like, Go look at what's happening in the arts. Um, how are they talking about knowledge? Uh, no, not knowledge. They're not talking about, but how they're talking about these phenomenons. Like, um, do put attention to the emotional, um, <clears throat> like emotional reaction to the technology we're building, and understand it a little bit better to to play with that. Because even though technologies are more known about, like, know more about technology they will still have those emotional reactions. So do look at how art is um, discussing these artificial intelligence. I don't mean watch Terminator. There's also like other things that are really nicely working with it. <clears throat> and then what was the second one? Who should you invite next? Who should you invite next? Like there's a lot of like really great names here. I'm not sure if they've been here already. Um, I. I think you should really talk to. I, I've been really impressed by by uh, learning more about Wordlift and Andrea Malbini. I think you should talk to next. But if you, yeah, yeah, we have not had them. No. They like he and what they're doing. Wordlift looks really promising. They they're really on it to do um, you know SEO, but now with um, not um, compliment people do searching on Google, but people searching on ChatGPT. So that's super interesting. Um, that's one of like. One of the talks that really impressed me. And then third one. What resources do you follow? So um, I follow, I read newspapers. I really love any um, sites that talk about culture. So my favorite is like my most favorite Saturday past um, like uh, activity is to read the Financial Times weekend of life and arts section. So the life and art section of FT Weekend, because it always has this like beautiful, um, very well written journalism about literature, world events, especially like interesting cultural things happening in Africa. They have a lot, they covered that really well. There's always like a person that they have lunch with. And sometimes I dream that maybe 
you know, FT will have lunch with me. I'm not that person yet. But, you know, I used to dream that I would be in catalog cocktails a few years ago, <laughs> and here I am. So maybe next time in a few years, well, like okay. in 20 years, I'll be like in lunch with FT. That's my dream. But um, and for me, it's like my women's magazine. I relax when I read about culture, when I read about like, like just somebody having really thought out reflections of things that are happening currently. I, so. I love that recommendation. You know, pe people sometimes get so steeped in like technology and business and stuff like that to look at it from the arts angle is such a good contrast and a great way to get a wider view. One of the best tech comments I found, I, I found on FT Life and Arts. Well, there we go. Well, Katarina, this was fantastic. We went through so much and we learned so much about the, your, your experience and perspective uh, applying this at IKEA. Just a quick reminder, next week we have Maddie Want, who is the VP of Data Fanatics, Betting and Gaming. And she's also the author of Precisely, Working with Precision Systems in a World of Data. We have tons of like digital transformation stories we're going to go through. So it's actually going to be hard to pick kind of the, her favorite one. So I'm really excited about that. With that, Katarina, Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Tim. Thanks, Data World lets us do this every Wednesday. And, you know, we're off to this really nice rooftop bar right now to go uh, have a drink and overlook at the Manhattan skyline. Yes. <laughs> Y'all enjoy. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. This is Catalog and Cocktails. A special thanks to Data.World for supporting the show, Carly Berghoff for producing, John Loyans and Brian Jacob for the show music, and thank you to the entire Cataloging Cocktails family.